Hello and welcome to the Grand Cinema Hotel, a podcast hosted by two friends who love cinema. Tonight you'll be seeing in room 181, Rushmore, the sophomore film directed by Wes Anderson. So go ahead, get comfortable and throw on that Do Not Disturb sign as we continue our Wes Anderson with Rushmore. These are the names that define our world. The artists who shaped our minds. The rebels who challenged our views. But of all these legends, there is one that stands above all others. I'm sorry, did someone say my name? (laughs) What's the secret, Max? The secret? I think you just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to Rushmore. my flunking overachievers and thank you for checking back in i'm gus and as always i'm joined by my co-host alvaro what's up guys and before we get started make sure you like subscribe comment on all the things and places where you listen to this podcast because it helps out immensely uh the anderthon continues i feel like the first episode was a lot of fun uh but the movie we're dealing with today is just a whole nother level honestly uh, and i'm really glad to be doing it of course we're talking about rushmore uh, this is my second time seeing it. Alvaro, this is your first time seeing it, correct? Yeah. Any first thoughts and opinions? Uh, we watched this movie together, and I know I, I could tell right away that you were enjoying it. Yeah, I guess it's a Danny DeVito. I get it, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I, I guess, it, especially because we had just seen Bottle Rocket last week, and um, I'm not too aware of his... Um, climb up obviously the industry or how he progressively became the Wes Anderson that I I came across but it was um I I really enjoyed I I would say I, that this film's budget and level is still a tier above Bottle Rocket but that you could already tell the difference in budget really he kind of already honed in on what he wanted to do and I think the film I really enjoyed um how it looks like bottle rocket still, but that the um, symmetry is starting to get there. And then also the um, way that the characters kind of reveal stuff, you know, with the notes and all of those stuff that we started to really enjoy from him later on. But I think I just enjoyed the groundedness of this one. And then I always, um, I ended up feeling like this is what people who really like, licorice pizza feel because i was like this is like the same it's a a similar type of story Yeah, maybe he's older right in rushmore he's an older kid maybe but that's like a i felt like this seems like um what's the main who's um the main character in licorice pizza like that the kid oh gary valentine yeah like he seems like gary valentine like in the same type of um yeah they're a similar cloth they're cut from a similar cloth yeah gary it, valentine and max fisher right exactly the precocious teen the kid that you almost can't believe is real right mm-hmm. they feel like an adult already even though they're very very childish which he, is in this movie extremely evident by the outbursts like you would swear he's 11 years old 10 years old and i wrote a play exactly right and it's like a it's it's very hard i think to kind of get that performance out of anybody that age because i think it's a very 
it's a very interesting dynamic to have. And so I think it's my favorite movie that I've seen with that dynamic. And you know, I, I don't want to get too much into it now because I have lots to say about it later. And he's probably going to be one of the main focal points of the episode. But Jason Schwartzman, our main character here, this was his first acting role. No indie movies or no smaller indie movies, no TV. He was in a band before this. So that is just a natural at work. You know what I mean? Like when I was watching Rushmore, and I seen this first uh, when I seen this the first time. I remember being taken aback by like, wow, he's really good, really young, right? Um, because I had only seen him as like a you know a fully grown man before. Yeah. Before I had seen Rushmore, you know, like I was aware of him in the other Wes Anderson movies that I had seen first. And yeah, much like you, like the first time I saw Wes Anderson, it seems like he was almost like fully baked, you know. So. After seeing like the Royal Tenenbaums and Steve Zizou and of course the Grand Budapest and Moonrise Kingdom and things like that, you know, I saw those movies, but then I realized I hadn't seen the first movies. And then when I went back and watched Rushmore uh, for the first time, it was about like maybe three to five years ago. I just remember thinking like, wow, this, this is like uh, his Pulp Fiction, you know what I mean? Exactly. Where you're like, oh, okay, this is where the style really starts. Or like with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, like, oh, Boogie Nights, like, there you go. Like, that's the thing that's going to carry through the rest of them. And much like uh, Hard Eight or Reservoir Dogs or Bottle Rocket, it's like you can, as good as those movies are, you can still tell that they're first timers, you know. And then the second movie progression is just a huge, huge leap. And I felt... I felt that way with this movie as well. Yeah. You know, like yesterday or I'm sorry, two days ago when we watched this, uh, you looked at me and you told me you're like, this might be my second favorite Wes Anderson movie just off my first impression. And I felt the same way too with this rewatch. Like yeah. I really, really liked this movie. I think this is the first masterpiece that he makes. I, I obviously think he goes and makes a few of them after that. That's why we're doing the series. But this one is extraordinary. And I do think it's, still grounded like you said in some sort of reality and last week we also talked about the blueprint right and mm -hmm. how it was much like the movie had a blueprint it's like you could see wes anderson's blueprint and owen wilson's blueprint for how they're going to make movies going forward and i think this is brought to fruition in a way that they couldn't do with the smaller budget but also uh in comparison with bottle rocket it is still very grounded in reality where I think Tenenbaums is the last film that's grounded in reality, and Steve Zizou is the beginning of the heightened, not real world, you know, like mm -hmm. literally props in the middle of a... It, he kind of does this like Tom and Jerry thing going forward, you know, where it's like, look at this very real uh, set of a submarine and people built in it, but look at this very, very fake shark in front of them, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, I do think Rushmore is the best of uh, the best of the early ones with the groundedness, you know, like, I don't know if it's my favorite one still, I guess we'll see next week with Tenenbaums, which one is my favorite early film, but yeah, Rushmore just feels so lived in and real like bottle rocket, you know, like I believe that Max Fisher is this kid and this sad businessman and this teacher who is dealing with the loss of her husband. And it just, I kind of wish he maybe stayed in this lane just a tiny bit longer, or maybe he would revisit it again. But I don't know. He kind of conquered it, right? Yeah. There's that aspect, too. Yeah, I think um, the other laying the blueprint that really happens here, and it flushes out even as well as they do in my other favorite ones, especially the Grand Budapest Hotel, um, is the character that is really funny but also very, like, you know, sad at the same time. And mm -hmm. I think there's there's 
every character here has that dynamic themselves, but when they're all together, they all, as a whole, also have that dynamic. So, like, what I'm trying to say is, you know, the teacher, him, Max, the student, and then also the the principal, right? That's who. Um, oh, yeah, the headmaster. Headmaster, yeah, that's his role. Um, they all obviously have, like I said, a sad dynamic going on because as smart as Max is, it doesn't seem like he's actually cares about any of the actual core classes that you're supposed to care about, right? So I do think that there's like a sadness there. Um, but when they're together as a whole, there's a happiness, a purity, like a family happiness. But then throughout the whole film, it's just really funny, which is, that's like, the foundation of what he is now, you know, like even in Asteroid City that is against the with Jason Schwartzman is like that seems so now like so cooked in, so baked in. They're so proficient at, at that type of character. But this one it seems like was the first one where the whole movie really got that right. Um we've never really talked about this in any of the Wes Anderson films that we have discussed before. But do you think he's kind of underrated as a comedic director? Like that not enough people realize that his movies are like very funny. I think it takes a special type of, um, not a special, but like a certain type of uh, humor to think his stuff is funny though. Cause I do think other people just think it's kind of like, I don't know the same way. Some people think Quentin Tarantino's, you know, like the way he has people talking, the script and the dialogue is, isn't real like well, what about you how do you feel about it do you think he's a comedy director do you see his films as comedies mm, slightly yeah i mean i don't think he's underrated i just think that's something he's very good at writing into his script but the, yeah because especially like the grand budapest hotel like i do think it's like i do think that's one of the funniest movies i've seen so i, I do think he's really well at doing his um writing into his his scripts um these moments of comedy that i think end up really making or standing out more because you have those sad moments too or you know how broken the characters are yeah like i don't think that he's like one of the greats but i do think that he makes very funny movies and like fantastic mr fox it's like that's hilarious yeah right uh the grand budapest hotel i mean it's a, it's a tragic comedy and like i like what you said about the characters in that movie i do think that might be the one that has like the saddest character you know which yeah. is like gustav h and like the things that he goes through throughout the film and how he masks it with this like sense of like efficiency and precision and the way he runs that hotel versus like his actual life, you know? Exactly. And uh, just that, that duality that you get there. Uh, I do think that that's probably the film where he gets that across the best, but that is also a recurring theme of all his characters. I just think that Gustav H is the one that uh, embodies it the best, or maybe even uh, Jason Schwartzman in asteroid city, you know, like I don't think that this is something that, he could still top that, you know, but I do think at the moment that that's like the pinnacle of it. I agree. But yeah. I do think that this film here, Rushmore, is where it really starts. And something I wanted to talk about was the first time I watched this, I think I just let it kind of wash over me. I didn't really think about like, what is this movie really about other than this relationship dynamic between this 15 year old and a 50 year old man who are friends and kind of equals <laughs> because that love triangle situation they have going on 
just like licorice pizza it's like you can't really say that that's what the movie is like fully about because then it does get into like a this is creepy territory you know like it's played in a way where it's supposed to be still seen as innocent you know like his crush on this older woman or in licorice pizza like his crush on her like it's treated with like care you know like it's not supposed to be like pedophilic obviously you know i do think the difference here is that because she's so much older and the establishment right off the bat where she thinks it's ridiculous and then licorice pizza the the questionable part i think is that alana leans into it and it's kind of like why would you i don't understand why you would lean into it yeah and here she's right from the get-go is like she just finds him an interesting boy and he takes it of course any kid that age would fall in love with the if you're that type of kid would fall in love with somebody you could have these conversations with um, but I think right off the bat, it's kind of established, like, no, this isn't, it's not like, uh, you know, The Graduate either, where you're like, oh, she might be in on it. <laughs> you know, The Graduate's actually a huge inspiration for this movie. The Graduate, have you seen Harold and Maude? Little bits of it when in, like, a cinema class, they showed us, you know, some of the importance, you know, show the important um, I just heard that that's one that's really heavily inspired. And then the one that really I don't understand and I think I think you've seen this movie as well, though. It's Chinatown, but I don't see it. But maybe, maybe you do. They said in terms of how it's shot. I don't know. Does that come across to you at all? Yeah, I guess I guess so. I think I'd have to. I mean, there's not that you said that the way that it's shot. Yeah, but I guess I'm like. The movies you, are so unsimilar in every other aspect, though. That for me, it's like, why would you make that comparison, right? Yeah, I guess I guess it's with the way the camera really follows Jack Nicholson's character in Chinatown, and then the way that the camera moves for Max in this movie. I guess now that you brought it up, yeah. But I feel like that don't a lot of move. <coughs> Sorry, but I'm like, but Chinatown, like I'm like, is that the first movie to do that to credit that? But like, or having a lot of movies, kind of. If if Chinatown has done that, I'm sure a lot of other movies before that have also done it. So I'm a little confused as to why it would be credited towards chinatown but maybe he had recently seen that movie before he made rushmore and was like i wanted to look like this yeah i'm not sure either uh it could just be that like that's the movie where it's like oh that camera work that's what kind of movie i wanted to make yeah you know like i'm sure you have a favorite movie like just based off the cinematography like it has nothing to do with the kind of story you would write it's just that like that's what i want it to look like exactly yeah yeah i guess that's what i guess make sure that's fun i we're not going to say who directed that movie, of course, <laughs> but Chinatown is an extremely good movie. So I could see why that's something he would want to base it off of. Um, <laughs> that's true. Going off of more of a update on Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson at this point, they had been friends for 10 years at the time of Rushmore's release. Uh, interestingly enough, it had started being written even before Bottle Rocket. So this is an idea that they may have even had prior to, which is not uncommon. A lot of things happen where directors have four or five stories ready and you and your first movie ends up being the one that the studio wants to make, you know, when they right. see your scripts. It's like, I don't know, maybe I thought this one would be first, but okay, they want to do this one, right? Um, I've heard that also with Robert Eggers in The Lighthouse, that he had started writing that even before The Witch. Because it was like an idea that his brother had. Um, but... Uh, Wes Anderson is on Charlie Rose in 1999, kind of talking about his process uh, of writing. And it kind of just goes him and Owen Wilson 
they back and forth stories and you know they've known each other for a very long time so a lot of the stories they already know but every once in a while there's something they don't know about each other uh and it'll just kind of go from there where they kind of make the character around these stories that have actually happened to them and rushmore is such a personal film once you dive into it a little more because you realize like okay this is supposed to be wes anderson and owen wilson like as one person you know uh, but that they write, they would write on just like scraps of paper and pass it back and forth. And a funny thing that I thought, uh, a funny thing that happened, and I think it's an interesting part of their dynamic, is that Owen Wilson would cross things out in big red X's that he didn't like. And Wes Anderson, because he knew how to type, would just not type it if he didn't like it, you know? So he was like, Owen's writing style is much more aggressive than mine. Like, it kind of makes me feel bad because, like, he gives me my papers back. It's like, X, I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. And for me, I just I just don't type it, you know? And uh, when Charlie Rose asked what was the main difference in your guys' uh, writing style, he was like, I know how to type and he doesn't. No so idea. at the end of the day, I do get to decide what's really in the script because it's going to be typed out at the end of the day. Yeah, that's, that's funny. <laughs> Especially because in a dynamic now that, like, I wonder how he progressed with that Owen Wilson. You know what I mean? Obviously, he learned how to type at a certain point, but it is funny to think that at one point it might have been holding him Hey, back. maybe that's why he stopped after bombs, though. He was like, well, this is too hard. I'm not typing, bro. Huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The hill I'm dying on is the computer. Huh? It's, I'm not typing. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wes Anderson still living in New York at this point. And the reason I want to bring this up is because he lives in New York for most of his adult life until 2005 which is when he moves to Paris and he's lived there ever since. And I do think that that is going to play heavily into the rest of the movies and really the character that he kind of becomes, you know? Yeah. And that I think different things he's exposed to, obviously stories um, where, I mean, I've been told like Asteroid city, it's kind of like these stories are all Western uh, North America, Western like influence but then he's adding that style to like european stories you know oh are you talking about like in the french dispatch and the grand budapest yeah exactly like, like those concepts like that like of a hotel of that type of panache as they say right it doesn't really exist on our side over here it would no, be a europe our hotels european are thing. ugly compared to that yeah so like european class like you know elitism it's a building that's like 300 years old too exactly so i do think it ends up because that's why the movies work though too because at the end of the day, you find out when he does do something like Asteroid City or when you watch Bottle Rocket that you know this guy is very American. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, at the end of the day, he's still a kid from Texas, right? Yeah. Um, Owen Wilson's acting career is also taking off in a kind of an exponential rate. He's in, he's after Bottle Rocket, he's in you know small role in The Cable Guy, so kind of getting familiar with like Ben Stiller and uh, Jim Carrey's of the world and. That's kind of where he's going to end up going, right? But he's also in... I don't know if you remember that he's in Anaconda. I don't remember that. <laughs> and he's also in... I don't know. Have you ever seen Armageddon? Yeah. Yeah, so he's in Armageddon, too. So that's like his... I would say that's probably his first big, big. huge blockbuster movie that he's in. I mean, And he kind of, in the beginning of his career, or the early stages, I think balances it well, right? Because it's like he does these movies like Armageddon, but then he's also in Zoolander and Meet the Parents and stuff like that. And then he ends up doing the Wes Anderson film. So those first like 10 years of his career, I think, are pretty balanced. Pretty balanced, yeah. He knew how to expose himself pretty well. And also, I mean, movies were just so different at the time, right? Like a, a movie star now... <laughs> 
we have, you know, if you think about like Paul Mescal and Timothy Chalamet or whoever, you know, they're all in a certain type of movie, whether it's a drama or a cannibal movie or a whatever. It's all a certain type of film, still a very serious filmmaking, you know, and you don't really see the bouncing around too much anymore of like, when is Paul Mescal going to be in, uh, I don't know the Irish meet the parents or something like that, right? It's like probably never because you have to be prestige, right? Yeah, Timothy Chalamet has dove into it some more, obviously with Dune and then with stuff, um, you know, what's the, don't look, yeah, don't, don't look, look up. up. But yeah. even that, that's a highbrow intellectual comedy, supposedly. You know, that's that and meet the parents couldn't be farther apart in like the type of dumb humor that they are, I'd say. That's funny because I see them in the same type of humor. <laughs> hey, like I think that they're they're the same type of ridiculous movie. But that's how I think. Like I see only, uh, role, like Timothy Chalamet has done a role like that. That's just completely like somebody else could have done this. Like it didn't need to be Timothy Chalamet. I mean, he's also gonna be Wonka, right? Yeah. So I think he <laughs> he's dope. he's done it more than uh, like Paul Mescal, for example. But, you know, Paul Mescal is supposed to be like in a Marvel movie now, right? No, they said he was, but he's. Yeah, uh, like he's exactly. gonna be Johnny uh, Storm, right? That's the fi- that's the Human Torch's name. <laughs> yeah, but sure, why not? There's <laughs> yeah, like why isn't Robert Pattinson in a comedy, right? Yeah, like because you've seen that he's funny, like his actual personality outside of his films, and like that small short film he made, I think with like GQ or Vogue or whatever about like finding a hot dog in New York. Yeah. Like, I think that he's funny. And even his role in, like, Good Time, you know, like, that chaotic energy is, at the end of the day, kind of funny. But you're right. Like that hustler mentality, you know? It doesn't bleed into going into movies that are different type of demographics of people that watch it too much. Yeah, my point wasn't to call out, like, certain movie stars. It's just that there's a there's a tighter formula now than there used to be, I would say. Yeah, I of, mean. Like, how you become <clears throat> a star or... If you're going to be a prestige actor, you can only do certain things. I mean, a good good example, I think, though, too, is like Jack Nicholson, right? For a lot of his career, he was in films that are, well, I guess now in retrospect, they kind of seem like highbrow. But then in during our lifetime, this fool was like in all the movies that were with Adam Sandler, you know, all these movies. Anger management. I'm sure he did a kid's movie here and there. Yeah. Or Al Pacino. That's a good example. Yeah. Like literally doing the Dunkachino commercial, like fully leaning into Robert it. De Niro. You know, the intern at Google. <laughs> you know, it's like the life of an actor is is strange, and I do think now Michael Keaton it right? changes. He it's was, like, you know, Timothy Chalamet. He he always has that. He's known for that that Leonardo or Leonardo DiCaprio gave him that that advice young of like no drugs. No superhero movies and no, I forget what the other one is, but like, this is the, this is how you be the next me, you know? And I don't know. I, I guess there's more of a blueprint now for like, you need to take me serious, you know? Yeah. I think it's everybody does want to be, but Leo, right. But even fuck, even Brad Pitt has done now has done that. Like where he's in a bunch of stuff that you're like, damn, Brad Pitt's in this. Yeah. He's kind of in anything, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, and like again, see, like it's that's not respected because like I mean, he has enough respect where people don't care, but that's what well, his he time's gets. also over. Like Brad Pitt, the best of Brad Pitt is who cares, right? Yeah, he's already done that. Yeah, every once in a while, still he'll come up with something that will add to it, but it's not the best of. I think he already did that. You know, or, I mean, I think the best example of that is Tom Cruise, right? Of like managing awesome. your or The Rock too, of managing your your uh, persona. 
of like I'm only in these big huge movies or I'll never get my ass kicked in a movie or whatever, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's interesting stuff. Anyways, not to get too caught up on that. Uh the casting for this film is an extensive long process both for the school and the character of Max. Uh, 1,800 people or teenagers auditioned for the role from England, Canada, and the U.S. Uh, Jason Schwartzman ends up getting picked up because some ca- some casting director. And the reason I say some is because films have multiple casting directors in multiple cities or in countries. So you never can just point it to one guy, you know, like four or five different people could cast a film. Yeah. But Francis Ford Coppola is having some party, some celebration or whatever. Jason Schwartzman... Uh, I don't know if he was actually there or not, but his cousin, Sophia Coppola, is talking to this casting director and tells him, oh, you know, like, I have a cousin who I think would maybe be good for this movie. And he's in a band at this point, and he's never acted, so he's kind of just like, sure, like, I'll audition for this movie. He said he never could have imagined that that's where he was going to be. And that when he goes to the audition, he shows up in his own Rushmore blazer that he made himself, like, and... Wes Anderson was like, once I saw him do that and I saw him audition, I was like, that's him, you know, like that's the guy. And they almost didn't make the movie. They almost shelved it because he didn't feel like he could find the right kid. Uh, the other option that almost happened was Macaulay Culkin. And I just feel like that would be a movie that would not be remembered today. Not very fondly. Hmm. I mean, in retrospect, because Wes Anderson is Wes Anderson, maybe it would have worked, but I do think it would have fallen into comparisons of. I mean, Macaulay Culkin, everybody sees him and sees Home Alone, right? Can you name another movie he's in? I'm not trying to do a gotcha moment, but like, I can't. No, but then that's what I mean. Like, and Jason Schwartzman is like, because he's not in anything like Home Alone at that point, at least. It's a, a movie that it adds perfectly to the type of actor that he is. It makes sense, you know. I, I think it works because you have to have this unknown actor because that's how you can embody this character. And I think Macaulay Culkin is way too famous to be seen as that's Max Fisher versus that's Macaulay Culkin playing this guy. Like, There's a chance, maybe, but I agree. I don't think. Maybe his brother, his brother, the one who's in succession. Yeah. He would be a better Max Fisher. Yeah, because at that point, too, I don't even know if... They're kind of on a similar wavelength. Like Jason Schwartzman and him. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, but I'm I'm glad it was Jason Schwartzman, obviously. Yeah. The the nepotism bled through. (laughs) Yeah, of course. I mean, the other Wilsons are in this movie, right? Yep. Uh, The other person I really wanted to bring up, though, was, of course, Bill Murray. Uh he gets this movie because his agent is a fan of Bottle Rocket. The role is written with him in mind, but that's just hoping for the best. Uh, Wes Anderson said he didn't think that his eight, like, there's no way he's even going to get this script. Like, I'll send it and it'll just get lost, right? Or I'll never hear back about this. But that his agent likes Bottle Rocket, so he really pushes it to Bill Murray. And then he takes it because... He's, he you know he becomes familiar with Bottle Rocket as well, and he's like, okay. And he does it for scale, which at the time is $9,000, which is like a recurring thing that ends up happening in these Wes Anderson movies. I wonder the kind of riz this guy has with actors, right, where he just can get you to – you believe in him so much that you're willing to work for well below what you deserve. Yeah. Just because they're like, this sounds cool. Especially <laughs> this whatever, is like you know? Bill Murray after, like, after Ghostbusters, obviously, right? Like, obviously. All those movies that he's made, Groundhog Day. So he's so, well, very well known. I'm glad you bring this up too, though, because 
this is his uh, down years. No, his yeah. Well, the previous years before Rushmore are some down years, and he's kind of taken not so seriously. Not that he ever was taken extremely seriously, but the movie star quality aspect of him had kind of started dwindling down. And Wes Anderson is credited with starting the the second wave of his career of you don't get the lost in translations and other films like that without Rushmore mm. because Bill Murray is not being seen as someone who could do these things. I it's kind of like the Adam Sandler thing where you got to uncut gems them every once in a while. Um, and I think Bill Murray's fantastic in this movie. I do think that this is like how I picture him, you know, exactly. my first uh, interaction with Bill Murray is like space jam and Caddyshack, you know? So it's like, I never really saw him. At, I didn't know he could, actually act or you know no disrespect but i just thought he was a funny guy you know? yeah yeah and even as a kid you know when you watch space jam you're like is this supposed to be like a big reveal or something because they're like it's bill murray and you're like five years old you're like what are you talking yeah. about who is this that's <laughs> funny too because the, t- the time me and you would have been watching space jam is the time rushmore would have been coming out you know so it's like no frame of reference at all no if you ask me when i was five who bill murray is i'm like what the fuck i don't know bill murray yeah, <laughs> yeah and then that? yeah like you said only because of space jam and that's what i knew him in then when i watched ghostbusters like oh i know who that is because of space jam yeah um the other interesting thing i thought is that the role of max uh fisher and then herman bloom which is bill murray's character they kind of remind me of Wes Anderson and Bill Murray in real life because there's an uh, a plot a subplot in the movie where Max asks him for like I think it's like what does he say like thirty five racks or something like that yeah and he's like I'll give you twenty five uh, or twenty five hundred in real life Wes Anderson was trying to get seventy five thousand dollars to do a helicopter shot that he thought he wanted to put in the movie and. This is tying something else together. The movie ends up being bought, uh, the rights to the movie being bought out by Touchstone, which is Disney. I think the guy's name is Joe Roth, who negotiates this deal because he was the head of Disney at the time. Uh, They get a $10 million budget, but of course you need a little more sometimes, right? Uh, They're saying, no, we're not going to give you this money to do this helicopter shot because there's a very tight budget on this. So Bill Murray just writes him a blank check. Go ahead. Like, let's do it. Like, I believe in you that much. Let's do it. And... They don't end up using it anyways. I don't even know if they ever ended up shooting it. But I was just like, wow, that's that's like the movie. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. I was like, these parallels between his real life and the character. And I think that's what makes it feel like such a personal movie. I think we said that about Bottle Rocket, but for different reasons, you know, that it felt personal. This one feels the most like, no, that's him on screen, you know, like writing the movie about his life. Yeah, especially in another <clears throat> aspect as well. I think like we see recurring characters here brought from the first movie. Like you said, a lot that were grounded in people that he actually knew. And yeah, then the, the teacher, the professor, and the jan- uh, the maintenance man are from the first movie. Exactly, and then uh, in the play, uh, one of the Mexican cooks uh, from the first movie. Yeah, that was a good eye because I I didn't catch that at all, and you stopped me. You're like, oh look, that's the guy from Bottle Rocket, the one who translates for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's in it too. So I do think those are all people that um, Wes Anderson brought, and also, oh, just no, he didn't, no, that was it. I just say that he just brought with them, and then you just said how it's a recurring character. Um, you know, the owner of the nightclub has always been in his movies, right? So, oh, the coffee cafe. The coffee, yeah. 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 So that's like, um, I, again, just goes back to the groundedness of stuff when doing stuff with your friends just continues. 
but at the, they're already elevating really fast, so they're bringing them onto stuff where um, it, it just all really works well because I think that's like the dynamic that you're talking about. That um, sometimes we talk about certain directors like Nolan are able to get people to just do stuff for them because they're like, I just really want to be in their movie, right? Yeah, the Kenneth Branas and the Killian Murphys, they're like, I'll be there, save me a spot, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm because, interested. Uh, like, and it doesn't matter, or and Wes is able to get that, obviously, in Asteroid City, we see it again, where... This becomes these, a recurring thing in his films. He just gets better at it, you know? They where call he's it the Wes Anderson traveling circus because it's like the same cinematographer, the same editors, the same actors. Until does like I need in after yeah. a certain point, you know I'll what I mean? You. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I, I think that's why this film to me ended up coming, being like the perfect meeting of those two things. And I thought it would be maybe at a later film. I didn't expect it to be at the second one. You know? Yes, exactly. But that's how you see that he's just starting this idea of how he wants to be as a director and how he wants to be as a like a leader of people you know because at the end of the day a director is that as well so as as kooky as a character as Wes Anderson is at the end of the day he leads people to a finished product that you know starts with his vision and I think he does that wonderfully and he really has found a crew of people who seem like they would die for him you know and that's Thank God he wants to make movies and not lead armies, you know? He, uh, yeah, <laughs> like James Cameron, you know what I mean? Where you're like, oh, good thing this guy just wants to make movies. <laughs> he uh, has that, I guess, way of seeing it because he's from Texas, right? Like a stable. Yeah. He has a stable of things. Or it's like a, because he's so enamored with uh, actual plays, the, the like an acting troupe, you know what I mean? Of Like they just travel around playing different characters and different plays and stuff like that. Um And one of his interviews that he does back in the day, he says that he knew early he didn't want to be an authoritarian type of director, that that's just not the kind of person he is, and that he doesn't want to be demanding, and that he wanted it to be very open to the idea of other people being able to contribute to these movies. Um, And some of our favorite, you know, auteur type directors are very much the opposite, you know? You write the lines I say, you light it the way I tell you, um, and... Like Max he, in this movie. It can be equally yeah. effective, you know? Yeah, like Max. Don't fuck with my play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, it could be equally effective in either way, but just for Wes Anderson, that is the, that's the formula for how to make movies. And the reason he likes to bring people back as well is because anybody who's new doesn't only have to rely on Wes to get that information. They can talk to the crew. They can talk to the other actors. They can talk to Bill Murray. They can talk to whatever... The fucking, I'm sure the craft tables people, you know, like, oh, is this, is this how he is? You know, and it's just, it's helpful for everyone to make a new person feel welcomed by, they all kind of understand what they're here to do. It's like really interesting because like the, as he evolves, there's certain ones that stick around like Bill Murray and like he'll, oh, I'll be there all the time, right? After, but then there's like certain, just like I said, Tilda Swinton ends up adding on somebody who like, seems like she'll be in any, any of them now for moving forward. Same thing with like um, Adrian Brody. Yeah, like, he's been in quite a few now. Probably where they three, meet, four. like they meet once, you know, and they they love him so much that they're just they're like probably like just call me for the next one. Like I'll I'll do whatever you want. Me I in think the, next the one. ultimate uh, the ultimate person there the ultimate sentiment I saw with this type of actor was when Edward Norton said, "You know why I do Gucci commercials and Chanel commercials? It's because I want to be in a Wes Anderson film for four thousand dollars." And if I want, I want to make the movies that I want to make. So I'll sell out and do a commercial once in a while so that I can continue to work with somebody like Wes Anderson. 
which is kind of sad that somebody who is so well known also has to deal with having such little power still. Yeah. You know, it's like you would think someone like Wes Anderson, even though his movies might not be the most profitable, they don't lose money. They still make money at the end of the day because they're also made for very cheap. And he's a uh, he's one of the household directors or household name directors, I would say, of not just I get, you know, you can't just say everybody, but of people who know movies, people who are interested in movies, people know who Wes Anderson is. Yeah. And not even to a crazy degree, maybe like to the how we are. It seems like a very mainstream name to know. I think, you if know, Family Guy's making fun of him. It's obviously mainstream enough. If SNL's making jokes about you, yeah, exactly. So, it is just kind of sad that that's the most power a director like him can even wield. I mean, Tarantino and Nolan and maybe Villeneuve have the most power. It seems like right now, right? But they're not the only filmmakers who are making that level of movie or that quality of movie. So it's just, it's just kind of sucks. Like even the PTAs of the world, it's like, how much power does he really have? How much power does Guillermo del Toro really have or Bong Joon-ho or whoever, you know? And it's just kind of the world we live in. And it just sucks. Cause like Wes Anderson, it's like, look at these people who are willing to work for $4,000, but it's like, damn, really? That's all that this movie can afford to pay. You yeah. know? Like, it's just, it's just weird. It's just weird times we live in, and that's why we're going through a strike and all this other shit, right? Agreed. But, yeah. Um, oh, the other thing I wanted to talk about before we really got into the movie was the school itself. Um, this is the school that Wes Anderson attended. Uh, it, like we said, there was an extensive process to find this school as well. They also scouted it for almost a year. At one point, they're they're mulling over the idea of what if we filmed the prep school stuff in England and then we filmed the public school stuff in Detroit because they couldn't be any more different than each other. Like that would really show the extreme variation. But what they end up doing is that his mom ends up sending him a picture of his school from a long time ago that she just had. I was like, what about this? And he's like, fuck, this is what I was looking for the whole time, you know? Yeah. And then the school that is across the street that's supposedly like, this dilapidated inner city school is across the street from his actual school in real life. They just like dirtied it up to make it look like even it's a worse. worse school. But the yeah. two schools are right next to each other. That's so funny. Uh, like, dude, that's why they wouldn't let you do the $75,000 shot because you fucking can't even like dude does right in front of you the whole time. <laughs> you went there. Yeah. But that's hey, funny. sometimes it takes a while to find, to find these things. Right. <laughs> that's hilarious. And then his mom being like, what about this? Oh Yeah. And then the family, the family stuff continues too because there's this wonderful making of documentary called The Making of Rushmore, and it's because his brother, uh, Eric Chase Anderson, who we had mentioned in Bottle Rocket, he comes to shoot a few uh, scenes or f for a few days, and it's supposed to just be like, you know, how every movie now on YouTube has like here's the small behind the scenes snippets that are like three or four minutes long. He came to just do that essentially. But then Wes was like, why don't you just stay through the entire shoot and then you'll have like a whole documentary worth, worth of stuff. And it's this 20-minute documentary and it's amazing because you could tell that they're all so young and it's so pure and it – like, dude, they're showing you like this is how we do this and like whole scenes playing out and everything of, but from the technical side, you know. And they're just like, dude, this is like a treasure trove of like how-to, you know. Like those cool shots of the, of the curtains – with the months on them that open up onto stuff. Like they show you how they did that. Just all this cool stuff that you wish you could see. 
is right there on display and his brother's narrating the whole thing. And it's so amateur that you can't, you can't help but feel it's like, this is the only way they knew how to do it. Like, I'm just going to record this stuff and then explain exactly what's happening on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> you like, know? yeah. It's so fucking good. So if you want a good insight into Wes Anderson, it's on YouTube and I logged it on my letterbox. So it's a real movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I logged it. Um, I was going to say, um, there's, I guess I just really blown away at how, you know, how much I ended up liking this movie, especially cause I, you know, you read the premise right before <clears throat> what it pertains to. And, um, just cause based off of bottle rock, I thought maybe I won't like this one as much, you know, just because I, it won't be what I expected. Hey, maybe but. I'm not an early West fan. Yeah, maybe I'm like I only like once he gets the budget, you know. But no, this really proved that uh, people who liked Bottle Rocket saw this from the early get go, and they were kind of like uh, <clears throat> worth worth believing in this kid because they saw this have a potential there. It's just very interesting because they couldn't be, I couldn't feel any more different about them, you know. About Bottle Rocket in this movie, yeah. Do you, it's like you almost wish that this was his first movie, huh? Not it's, you, but I'm just saying. Like, yeah. Like, ah, it'd be perfect if he had started like this. Like right? this, yeah. But I mean, like, again, it's like not everybody, especially at that time, would get a Jordan Peele budget to start their first movie, you know? But obviously, if you gave Wes the budget you gave him from Rushmore off the get-go, that's what he would have made as his first movie. Oh, man, it's just so good. And we haven't even really gotten into the movie itself. So I think we should do the, hey, 40 minutes into a podcast and you haven't even started talking about it, right? Yeah. That's just how it goes. <laughs> um, I'll do the synopsis real quick and then we can just kind of dive in a bit, talk about the characters, talk about our favorite moments and stuff like that. Um, when a beautiful first grade teacher arrives at a prep school, she soon attracts the attention of an ambitious teenager named Max, who quickly falls in love with her. Max turned to the Max turns to the father of two of his schoolmates for advice on how to woo the teacher. However, the situation soon gets complicated when Max's new friend becomes involved with her, setting the two pals against one another in a war for her attention. And it sounds ridiculous, and it's because it is, right? Like, as grounded as this movie is, as funny as it is, it's a ridiculous premise of this, like, love triangle between these three really sad people. And I know that that's... We said that with all of his movies so far, but th that's what he's best at. And I meant to say this earlier, but what I realized the second time watching the movie is that Rushmore is not only a school, it's like an idea of having something that you are wanting something that you can't truly have. Right. Mm -hmm. Because our three main characters here, which is Max Herman and Mrs. Cross, all are yearning and their biggest desire is something they just will never have. Like Max tells him in the beginning of the film, you know, we see that he's just like this really like honest, crazy in a good way kid of like, who is this guy? Right. And then you see Bill Murray right away, too. And you're like, wow, like you can just tell he's sad by the speech he gives in the beginning of like take aim for the rich kids and like take everything from them. And just like after, you know, you can just tell he's depressed. He's like calling them little shits and stuff like that. He's smoking the cigarette. Right. Like you can just tell he's just this unhappy dude. And he asked Max, what's the secret to life? And he's like, just find something you really love doing and do it forever. And for me, that's going to rush more. And with me, that really sat with me this time because I was like, that's really sad because this kid doesn't understand that like you're about you're going to graduate high school. And then what? Like for him, this is the peak. 
And you don't think of him like that, but it's like Max is already peaking at life, and this is probably the easiest part of his life. And he's not even very good at the school, you know? He's just good at everything else. Exactly. And then, you know, with Mrs. Cross, she can never have her husband back, of course. And Herman will never have her or true happiness, I guess, right? He's worth millions of dollars and is the unhappiest person in this movie, maybe. Yeah, I mean, there was a scene where we talked about um, where Bill Murray's, I guess, would be the, the mother of his kids, right? Yeah, like, that's it, one way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Is that, it, that that's not... It's very obvious it's not his wife or it's not... There's no his love His estranged there. wife is how they would say it. And yeah. there does seem to be even his unhappiness with his own kids in the movie, which I think is... Uh, like you said, you, you could be worth this money and all of this stuff, but if you truly feel like, well, I don't even have a really a wife and the kids that I do make... I think they're little shits, you know? There's a line delivery that he says to Max when he's watching wrestling. He's just like, never would I imagine I would have had sons like these. Because they're just big brutes, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? They're just the redheaded kid from fucking Home Alone. You know what I mean? Butch or yeah. Buzz, whatever his Buzz, name is, yeah. right? Just imagine two Buzzes that you gave. You have twin Buzzes, you know? And like, what the hell? How did this happen? Yeah. So, I didn't raise them this way, right? So yeah. Probably didn't either. So I think that was like a lot of, that is where his sadness comes from. It seems that, um, he has everything but a happy life, right? And like the, and I think that's why the funny quote that he comes from, like go for the rich kid's head to, you know, like take everything from them does come from almost like a self-loathing of like, I have all this and supposedly I'm important and all this. And someone like Max isn't, well, you know, Max fools him, specifically his best friend for a long time, saying that his dad is a uh, brain surgeon. Even that, <laughs> yeah. right? Which is a funny joke because he's a barber. Yeah. And then at the end, I love that. I love that line that when the dad's like, oh. what is Mr. Uh, he's mistaken for them. Yeah. One of the characters is like, you're a neurosurgeon, correct? He's like, no, I'm a barber, but I get that all the well, time. Yeah. <laughs> That's a common misconception. That's just yeah. ah, such a funny movie. So many funny throwaway lines, right? But they end oh, up like, are you? They, yeah, exactly. But they end up being just commentary on like how the character does feel, and it reflects on like what their sadness might be. I mean, the dad doesn't seem very sad in this movie because the dad seems to be the only one who has found his Rushmore. He's like, I'm a very good barber. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because that's kind of where I wanted to go next. Is of our three main characters, our fourth kind of mainish character who plays you know he's actually a significant role in the film really is the famous Seymour Cassell mm -hmm. well known for working with John Cassavetes he's the only one in this movie who has accepted his life for what it is and I do think that this movie is that's the message at the end of the film is that you do have to tamper your expectations for life to have a happy life and that's kind of a sad thing to accept but it also is what are you going to do? Just live the rest of your life wishing that it was this other thing instead of enjoying what's actually in front of you. And like, that's one of that's man's problem, right? That is the problem of being human. Yeah. I mean, I think that is the ultimate message in the film because once Max quote unquote gives up, he's like, I'm just a barber's son. Right. And obviously that's not, what the movie's trying like it's not trying to get a negative message in that aspect but i think it's the fact that most of us probably come to that realization or have that type of conclusion and then you, you i mean like either 
you accept that, I guess, or you also kind of uh, because like the aspect that you're talking about that he peaked in high school, it it seems like to him that message comes through to Max after a certain part of the movie and. I guess the complacency isn't really happiness, right? But his dad does tell him that he's not he's not just that, right? His dad just like leads him to know like that you're, he's supposed to be more than this. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, because there's a point where Max gives up and he's just going to be a barber as mm-hmm. well. And his dad is even like, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a barber, but I imagine that you would have a different career path. It's like he knows he's not a barber. Yeah. And every parent obviously wants better for their child than they have, which is like, yeah, being a barber is a respectable career. (laughs) Haircuts change people's lives. (laughs) But Max is Max could write the next great American play, you know, and I do think that the plays themselves also are a great indicator of that change, too, because when Max finally does accept his life and tamper his expectations and that Rushmore is not the end all be all, he writes his great play and it. Best play ever, man. It really is. You know, like he writes this phenomenal stage play that like even me and you when we were watching it are just like, whoa, <laughs> yeah, like the, fucking, the fake fighter jet going across and the real dynamite and the I can't believe they actually light, let him light a campfire on stage. Right. Like he gets to finally fly. And what I wanted to say is like from my own personal point of view, it's like of tampering expectations. I don't think it's a sad thing because. You're just, it's not that you're accepting your life as less, but it's accepting the things you have as valuable, you know? And it's like anything else from here is, is dessert. It's gravy. I I have what I need. So anything else is a success. And I don't think that that's like a bad way to look at life. And I think that this movie as well is telling you that at the end of the day, like if that's what you want to take as the message, that's what's there. You know, I don't think it's to be like Max because Max for two halves of this movie is a shitty person. Yeah. Like a really bad person. The temper tantrum happening all the time. And I do think that, yes, he's a child, right? But at what point it's like, dude, you're cutting someone's brakes, attempting to murder them. <laughs> like that is not, that is not just, oh, you're a kid, you know? Seriously. <laughs> That's that some evil a... Dexter's laboratory type of shit. <laughs> I mean, that's why the, they put him in jail, right? Take him out. What a cool shot, too, when they're taking him away, right? Yeah. I, I guess Chinatown inspired, as you said. I don't know. That's interesting to me. I'm still on that idea. I feel like that is what stumped me the most about this, right? Chinatown. Yeah, I don't know either. Was there a water conspiracy going on in Rushmore that I didn't know about? Uh-huh. Yeah, seriously. Um, I will say that another part I wanted to touch upon that I really enjoyed about this film uh, was the relationship that he has with the teacher's son, Dirk Calloway. I mean, just what Wait, a f- no, that she's not the teacher's son. Oh, he's not the teacher's son? No, no, no. Because remember that Dirk, Dirk's mom, she's actually important because Max lies that he got a hand job from her. Yeah. That's Dirk's mom. The teacher doesn't have a son in this. I'm so confused now. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Now I'm confused. Well, what were you getting at? And then we can correct. What is this? Dirk Calloway's just funny. Like that, that character is just. Oh yeah, his yeah. chapel partner. Yeah, like the relationship he has with him. To, yeah, now I'm just confused though. Well, That's he's funny. the first. He's the first of these type of characters too, because these extremely funny side kid characters become a recurring theme. I think our favorite might be Alien Boy from Asteroid World or Asteroid City, right? The 
Come on down, come on down. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, <laughs> right? that is an aspect I didn't want to touch upon, and I forgot last and bought a rocket too, but now it's becoming very evident because we're, you know, we're getting to Moonrise Kingdom, but one of his other things that he just really enjoys doing seems is working with kid actors, and he does get a lot of great performances from all of them. Yeah, we talked about in the Asteroid City episode because those kids, some of them were young actors or first-timers as well, and he said that kids keep you honest because kids are extremely honest and they remember what you tell them. So if you tell them one thing and then you change your mind, they're like, but you said, you know? And I do think that he gets really good performances out of these young actors and whether they go on to become actual actors, I'm not sure. It's like the mileage does vary on that. But he makes them... He tells kids... The stories with kids the way I would like to see them be told by more directors of treating them like small people, not children, you know, because he's like, you gave, you said you, uh, my mom gave you a hand job, you know, <laughs> like stuff like that. Like those are the things, whether you want to admit it or not, it's like when we're kids, that's the kind of stuff that goes on and like people start rumors like that and that kind of dumb bullshit or like the kids in Moonrise Kingdom or the kids in Asteroid City or whatever, like. Well, they're very extreme, right? Like, because they're these young geniuses or whatever. But yeah, I yeah. think he writes kids in a very real, grounded way. And well, especially, that sounds like especially here, just because they're, they're not supposed to. I mean, they're supposed to be more academically inclined, sure, so they're smarter, but they still feel very um, grounded in just being kids. And I think in this one, they're not supposed to be any special type of kids. So, yeah, like the fact that, the relationship between this, you know, his bully, the Scottish kid, uh, all of those things do feel like uh, they're a family that would is what I feel like going to an academy like that as a school would feel like, like in your homeroom and all of that. But then it's also like um, like him, like he, they don't like each other, but he admires him very much. He's like, I've always wanted to be one of your stupid always fucking plays. I've always wanted to be in one of your fucking plays. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and it, it, so I, I think it's, I haven't been part of it, but it does feel very real to me. Yeah. Um, maybe this is like, we to unconfuse you, uh, one of the main aspects of the film is like this found family dynamic. And I do think that that is another theme that carries on throughout his work as well. And it's it's maybe the best part of the movie of when they're this little small family of Max and Herman Bloom and his teacher for some reason and his little kid best friend. <laughs> I don't know why they all do things as like a family unit or whatever, but it does seem to be doing a lot for all of them for like when it is working, you know, like they're all getting some kind of like emotional reward out of this. Yeah, and it's like that's what makes that's why movies are uh, weird, and that's why movies do things that you like would make no sense in real life. Like, why would this teacher and this random fifty-year-old dude who has his own family be these like pseudo parents for this kid? <laughs> but it's like it's because it's a movie or because it's a book, and like you can really explore the, the like the depths of human relationships in like the weirdest ways, and creepy in real life, extremely. But in a movie, you're like. Wow, I I feel a lot of love for this fake family. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they seem happy, you know. But in real life, you'd be like, "Call the cops now!" <laughs> yeah, 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 call the cops. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Why are you with your teacher and a random old man? <laughs> and his fucking dad is alive. It's not like his parents are completely gone. So it is interesting. Even that, right? That's always a movie trope of like the parent being like as uninvolved as possible in a kid's life, right? And I do think that's just because. That's the exaggeration of storytelling, right? Like, 
I spent quite a bit of time alone in my teenage years because my mom and dad were working and I'd get home and, you know, whatever. But it was very boring. I would just watch TV or hang out with a friend or something like that. It wasn't like, all right, now I'm going to go on an adventure with my other family. <laughs> yeah, and a whole second family, yeah. dude. Oh, man. Get an older, an older friend, too, right? I need a second dad. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, Plot-wise... Not much unravels here because we talked about that as well. It, it's not a movie that, or Wes Anderson, I should say, doesn't make movies where the plot is a mystery that unravels itself. It's very straightforward. He tells you this thing is going to happen, and then you see the small journey and up until that point, and then the next thing that's going to happen. And uh, still, like with Bottle Rocket, I love that about his movies, that he doesn't try to ever really, he hasn't really attempted that yet, I would say. I don't know. I don't think he has at least of like, where is this story going? Oh, like, um, don't you feel like you always know where you're going? Like you're along for a, a smooth ride. Yeah. It never seems like, uh, they're not going to get what they want. The main character need at the end in some type of way, either it's validation or compliance or it never does seem though. Like, um, and he didn't get what he wanted, you know. They're kind of satisfying endings, even if they are kind of a touch sad. Because, like, Royal Tenenbaums, it's like he dies at the end, <laughs> you know? And it's like, but his family finally accepts him again. Or in Grand Budapest, like, zero story is pretty sad. But at the end of the day, he became a successful businessman and the owner of the Grand Budapest and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I'm just saying, like, they all kind of have uh, the best of the satisfying sad endings might be Steve Zizou. You know, like that's really touching when they're all in the submarine together and they see the shark. And it's like, it's beautiful. You know, and it's like this whole time he wanted revenge. But I think that becomes a, that's just a through point in his movies. You know, it's like satisfying endings. endings. I wouldn't call them happy endings necessarily, but. No, satisfying. They, um, they're not trying, he's not trying to throw you a last like curveball at the end. So you're like, wait, what did that all mean? That the ending isn't supposed to confuse you. It's supposed to just add a dot to the end of the story, you know? Yeah, it, that little, like, thin, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, but the things you mainly need to know about the plot is this weird family love triangle-ish relationship going on between our three main characters and the fact that Max is expelled from Rushmore early on and is going to have to adapt and change his expectations for his life going forward. Um. Those are the, I would say those are the two main things, right? Like, if you want to know what the movie's about without giving too much away. Yeah. That, that, that covers the relationship that he has with Bill Murray's character and then the teacher. And, yeah, and I, I guess the other main thing is that he is a very talented kid. So a lot of his persona and charisma um, does come off like an adult, like you said, which is a big you know, aspect of the movie. Last week we said Bottle Rocket felt like a coming of age movie for an adult or like a young man, but this is a coming of age movie for a teenager. And some of his other movies I would describe that way as well. Like, especially like Moonrise Kingdom and stuff like that. And it almost feels like he makes coming of age movies for like every stage of life. Like it's not something that just happens once. Like it's a, it's a, it's an ever going process of, First, I was a boy, and then I became who I am as a teenager, and then I became who I am as a young man, and then this is who I am as a man. It's like a lot of self-discovery in his characters as well. Like yeah. that's where the real emotional or uh, the real 
unraveling is is like within the character themselves more than the plot i think correct yeah and i mean there's like you said and ones where you know he dies at the end it is coming to terms with even after your death how there could be satisfaction in how you ended your life right yeah like exactly like fixing relationships or coming of age to the end of your life (laughs) so yeah i mean that is true he has made a lot of films that have that um theme through all of them and i think that has come a lot with the type of characters that he writes and um a lot of the characters that he writes have these very meticulous calculated projections for themselves and then they don't exactly get there and either for a lot of his stories they end up realizing why not and are happy with those or they find a way to come to the way to get their goal, which is, I do think it's like most, or those are two ways his films end. Yeah. Yeah. And bottle rocket kind of has this ending as well too. Right. Because Owen Wilson, you know, that joke at the end where he's like, this is my escape plan. And then he just gives the smile like, no, it's okay. Like I'm just going to be in jail for it's okay. I'll be in jail for three months and then I'll get out and I'll have a fresh start. Right. Like even him in that very first movie, Dignan has to accept the, the tampered expectations, you know Um, what I wanted to say though about this movie is that Owen Wilson and uh, Wes Anderson, when they're writing this, the, the, the inspiration becomes roll, roll doll and you know, the Willy Wonka type books and all that stuff of like, these are the type of worlds we want to create. So that was a joint effort between the both of them. So that, that ever going style that is because that is what he's known for starts with the two of them. Um, and I still think you, to this day, you can credit Owen Wilson with it as well, because he's in almost all of the movies. Like, I think he's only not in one or two of them like going forward. Although he stops writing them, they also are executive producers at this point too now. So his influence is still there, you know? Like, I don't think he becomes cut out of the process at all. Right. Even if he's choosing to not write them anymore. Exactly. But, yeah, the storybook setting, so, like, these color palettes and the symmetry and the cinematography and the type of shots that they do, this all comes from this idea of, like, this is how we want to create worlds like Roll Doll. And it doesn't make – it doesn't surprise me that, you know, you get the Steve Zizou's and the Darjeeling Limiteds after this – and then up until now, like actually adapting Roald Dahl's work with Henry Sugar and these other stories that are coming out uh, at the end of September, by the way. So hopefully this all lines up perfectly. <laughs> um, that is a, uh, a positive is where I was going with this because that's the style that he becomes known for. And it's just so good. And it was so good to see it for that first time of like, yes, sure, there's small things in Bottle Rocket, but it's like, every small little detail in this movie you can tell is really accounted for. And I think it's like the crew that he's worked with from bottle rocket to now has also stepped up because they have a budget. So there's this group of people who were set designers and, uh, they did like the art for the movie and stuff and they worked on the first three movies. So I think I I wanted to bring that up, bring them up because I feel like, they also need to be credited for the like the birth of the style, you know. Yeah. Uh, so hold on here. Let me let me bring them up. I know one of them is. Uh, yeah, here we go. Sandy Reynolds, Wasco, uh, and Daniel Bradford. They're set decorators. Uh, her husband, or I don't actually. I'm not sure if it's her husband, but David Wasco is the production designer for the first three films as well. So it's like these three people also need to be credited for helping bring this 
style to life and helping cultivate it. And sure, others stepped in after, but they were there for the blueprint, you know? Yeah. Of what a Wes Anderson movie looks like. I mean, he probably knew how to build the base just off of that. I mean, everything, access to things just got easier after that, I would imagine, you know? I mean, yeah, because you get that you get that bigger budget, and you know, we you talked about earlier in the beginning. I liked this of like you see the progression between like very small budget, mid level budget, big budget, right? And we happen to be watching some footy matches right now, right? And I feel like Wes Anderson kind of has that like football player arc of you start off at this really small fucking club that like no one knows about or whatever, all the way up into. Like mid table clubs, like <laughs> Wes Anderson is unfortunately like West Ham at his peak, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, but it's just cool to see like that progression because we talk about him left and right on the show, but someone like Quentin Tarantino, after Reservoir Dogs, doesn't it just kind of feel like the budget has always been high? Or, I mean, sorry, post Pulp Fiction. So it's like Kill Bills. Yeah, they always Bills, were willing to give him what he wanted. Bastards. Like, if you told me he made movies for $100 million, I'd believe you. Yeah. And they all feel that way, too. Like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That one is, for sure. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know about Django and uh, Inglorious and the Kill Bills and stuff, but he just feels like he definitely takes that step up and never goes back. And Wes Anderson feels like he constantly has to fight for, like, can I just have $25 million, please? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, it is what it is, right? As uh, If anybody has ever done more with less, I'm not sure. That's what I'm saying. It's impressive to be able to see with Rushmore that that the type of film that he created is still comparable to the Grand Budapest Hotel when it, it's so various in budget scale. Uh, another cool thing I wanted to bring it up, too, was that it's only 50 days, the shoot. So that's pretty quick. I don't know how much extra stuff they could have possibly shot, especially with such a tight budget. Um, I know, like, those little montage sequences that are in the movie, uh, which is the thing that he really becomes known for. It's like when Max is showing all the clubs that he's in, like those cool singular yeah. Wes Anderson shots, right? Of like him standing there action in the background with text also there. Disney was not fucking down with that. Like they really were like, you're wasting time doing all of this. Like these are just waste of money. And like, we don't really fuck with this idea of telling stories this way. So the cast and the crew is they, they love this stuff. Right. And, they just have to shoot this whenever there's downtime and they could find a location and it's just kind of like pulling it out of your ass, you know, like Disney was very against the idea of them doing this thing in the movie because they just felt like such a waste of time and money. And it's funny because it's like this because one of the main things he's known for, and yeah. it's like, it just goes to show you like studios, they could have the money and they can, they can green light an idea, but sometimes they just don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Right. It's like, how are you going to cut out the thing that he becomes the most known for? <laughs> I think it's in uh, seeing it as a numbers thing, right? Of like, um, they don't see gimmicks as, you're not that guy, pal. It's not going to be known. Like, they're not going to ma- care. And then and Max is do. in like 20 clubs, right? So this is like asking for money for like 20 additional uh, sequences to shoot, you know? <laughs> and I get why they're like, no money wise, but it's like. You got to let them cook, man. Why do you why do you give money to people that you don't want them to to cook, you know? I mean, it's like what you would want your movie to be most profitable or what people always want to go see is unique movies, especially at this time. And, at, you know, in the cinema aspect, because I think Touchstone was big enough to promote this movie coming out and make it a big deal. A school of Rock type of movie. 
But then also that is a good comparison for like the feel of the movie, huh? Yeah, but then also the people who were aware of Wes Anderson's existence as a like a coming like a director that was coming up. So I I do think like when you have that type of situation, you would think that you'd make decisions for the film to be as unique as it can be. So people were like, this really stands out. But you know, again, like you said, for some reason executives don't see it that way. But, I mean, the the reason that I always kind of feel like it doesn't make much sense to me is because someone like Wes Anderson knew it would be worth it. And how did not one person also think it was worth it, right? So they had to, like, really fight for that. Let's start winding down a bit here. Um, what's your favorite moment in the film or your favorite thing about the film? Oh, I mean... I I think like I said I th- it's it's such a funny movie so I think a lot of my brain wants to automatically go to when I like laugh the most but um I think my favorite aspect would be when he goes to the public school and kind of starts to do like you said his masterpiece for his play and just um like what comes from that once he's kind of accepted that you know the teacher's falling in love with his best friend or Bill Murray's character, but then when they both kind of don't have her, and the teacher tells him you two deserve each other, and instead of taking it in a bad way, I think he did really leans into be like yeah, that is my best friend. He Casablanca's the movie at the end, huh? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think this movie has a really satisfying ending, which is a side conversation for a different time that we've had, but. This is a satisfying ending, I would say. Like, where I, I do think the ending is as good as the rest of the movie. You know, I'm like, yeah. yeah, that's a very good conclusion. And I don't know if we've ever talked about it on the pod before, but, like, you know, some of the best movies of all time don't really have good endings. And it's not that endings make and break the thing. But when it does have one that just, like, fits in line with the quality of the rest of the film, it just really stands out to you. And I thought the ending of this movie is fantastic as well. I think it's maybe even better than the the beginning or something like that. Um, it is too hard to pick out a moment in this one because I think with the great comedies, it's kind of what you said. It's like I'm laughing every so oft, every so often, like every minute or two, there's a hilarious joke that cracks me up that how can I pick one equally? <laughs> you know, I think you, you had brought it up before the podcast, the moment. And then this is like that, that, that one does stand out to me is when he, um, Dirk does find out, Bill Murray's character Dude, is we're on the same wavelength. Is messing with you know the teacher, and then he confronts him about it like a mobster would, you know, and it's just or like a western standoff before they shoot each other, right? It's just the way it's shot, man. It's That's just, what I was gonna say. It's like it, the way Robert Yeomans is shooting this thing. It's like they shoot the kid from down low at a, like a Dutch angle where he's like. I don't ever want it to. He's like, I don't ever want him to know. I just want it to stop. stop. You know, you're like, you imagine he's going to shoot fucking Bill Murray. And Bill Murray, um, this is what we talk about fully leaning into something like that. Bill Murray's character at this point does look scared of Of the the kid. kid. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, oh no. You know, like this is bad news that for me, Max is going to find out, you know, and it's just, again, you completely get lost at the difference of age. And I do think like Dirk Calloway there, just, you know, the actor then that played him there, the kid, you get that really good performance from him throughout the whole film, and and I think it's not like a it's like a secondary role, obviously, but I I think it when those roles are also taken to a degree like that of careness, I just think it really makes me stay in the movie, and like you said, really think that um, 
this is a real dynamic. And the fact that, you know, Max is so apparently so ahead of everybody in his class, they all look up to him, that Dirk Calloway's like his assistant, and that also just the principal and himself the, would be so scared of what's going to happen. And, uh, <laughs> and he, you know, that's unrealistic, but in in this world, in this crazy world that you're talking about, it's not like Max is like, oh shit, he's going to find out. So, I think for me, if I had to boil it down to my favorite thing about this movie, it's the plays. I do think that those are the, the most standout moments and the thing that go... That that just really shine like everything about Wes Anderson is these sequences within the movie because that's what it's supposed to be for Max too. It's like Max does a million things, but at the end of the day, he's gonna be the next great like playwright. You know, like that's at least what it feels like it's alluding to. Um, the bow is afraid sets. Yeah, exactly. So I think if you can't tell by now, me and Oliver really fucking love this movie. We both gave it fives. I think that this is. Just a, a masterpiece of 90s filmmaking of yeah. the late 20th century, early 21st century. Um, the last thing I really want to talk about about the movie, and this is just, you know, I'm not going to go too much on uh, gyrating on it here. But, you know, it goes to TIFF. It goes to the New York Film Festival. Uh, it becomes an instant hit with the critics. It opens in New York and L.A. only and. uh in 1998 but then in february of 99 it opens wide to everybody roger ebert gives it two and a half stars <gasps> out of four right he thinks this thing kind of falls apart he thinks bottle rockets better gotta say i disagree with the old raj man on that one yeah. um an interesting thing is that pauline kale had retired at this point but she's one of the most legendary film critics of all time uh wes anderson holds a private screening for her because he just had to know like what is her opinion of one of my movies and allegedly she recommended it to people but she did say and is quoted as saying i have no idea what to make of this like i don't know what this is but you should watch it yeah but you should watch like it, it. i guess it's a positive right yeah like if she was also like she also needed other opinions i'm like is this good or not yeah. i think um you know when you log it on letterbox i always go down and see people whoever you follow that have seen the movie and most of the people that I follow give it a, uh, I would say most of them give it a four. There's a lot of them that have given it a five. But for the people who are giving it a four, I always kind of click us to find out why. Because a lot of them do write a lot as to the reasoning why. And they do think the same thing. That's like what I've heard. Like it falls apart after, or very, very dumb and, or no, very null and numb after, for certain parts. Like, They're uh, seeing something else. I, I guess like, like yeah. I'm saying like the, what I take as, melancholic at some scenes like where it might not be as flashy i guess is the right word to use i don't fucking know um i see it as a, this is a very sad and real like that's where the sadness comes to me from like i'm like damn this is actually His very movies are almost up. like a whale or a dolphin or something it's like you're underwater for so long but then you have to come back up for air and those are the moments of like reality inside the storybook you know where it's like okay breathe <sighs> real human moments you know and then maybe some people don't want that um i've seen that as well too sometimes oh, this movie falls apart uh, no movies without its critics obviously yeah yeah the consensus is is that this is an, a very good movie this is an important movie for indie cinema yeah that's I for mean, sure in 2016 it's uh registered from the library of congress as deemed culturally historically and aesthetically significant so I mean, the government is even like, hey, this is an important movie for American cinema, you know? And I do think that, you know, we agree because it's one of the great films of a uh, very important director. So Rushmore, 
whatever MGM Plus is, you can watch it there. Yeah. You can arg matey pirate it if you want. Or, hey, I don't know, find a DVD of it. But it's a very good film, and I highly recommend that you check this out, especially if you want to fill out that Wes Anderson bingo card, you know? Yes, sir. So catch us next week or next time for the Royal Tenenbaums and the Anderthon continues, man. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.